And while the kids uh, go, uh, if I need to have peace at home, I need to uh, uh, respond to my wife's request to advertise the trip to Israel next March, if we could uh, put the slide up there. Um, in March 2020, we were ready to go. We had 40 people going. We were all excited. We'd done all the prep work. And the day before we were about to go, we called it off because of a thing called COVID. But of course, we'd be going in 21. That was a piece of cake. Came and went. Well, it had to be 22. Came and went. And here we are now, 23. <laughs> so, uh, but I believe this is it. 23 will be going. Uh, we have over 20 people signed up already. I'd love to get about 30 to 40 people. Fits on one bus, but there's plenty of room because a bus typically seats 45 to 50 people. We'll be going with a guy called Amir Safati. Some of you know Behold Israel. It's a very uh, well-known and expanding ministry about uh, Israel. He is a Messianic Jew and a wonderful preacher of God's word. And uh, just personally, this would be my fourth trip to Israel. Uh, the Bible comes to life when you've been to Israel. You know, I read things and I had a picture in my mind of what they look like. And then I've actually been to the place. And for me, the most favorite place for me to go is the Sea of Galilee. It's just so peaceful, so quiet. And I can see Jesus on the shore calling the fishermen. I can see the breakfast. When he calls them back, I mean, it's so remarkable to be there. Don't miss this opportunity. It's a, a very, it's well-priced. It's going to be with friends from Hope Christian Church. I just really want to recommend that you come to, uh, to Israel with us next March. Hopefully. Pray for us that we'll be going this time. And there are flyers available outside in the lobby if you'd like to see what this is all about and what the details are. So, Gail, that's the announcement over. So, today's been a very hard day for me, so I want you to stick with me for a minute. I decided today I was going to be a cool teacher. So I went into my closet and I looked for my ripped jeans, I looked for my cool untucked shirt, I looked for my sandals, didn't find anything, and so this is me. White, button-down cotton Oxford shirt, black slacks. And the realization came to me this morning, I'm just not a cool teacher. <laughs> but you know what? It doesn't matter, because this is the coolest book in the world. Yes. And we're going to hear from this book today about the magnificence of God. Amen. And so I, all right. So I want to disappear into the background, and I want to bring God into the foreground. And there's been some remarkable things going on this week, which I think will make you agree how magnificent this God is. So. Todd invited us all to pick a psalm. For some of you that know, I played rugby for over 50 years. And the position I played at rugby was number eight. So I have, I'm very partial to number eight. So I said, you know what? We're going to do psalm number eight. And so that's where we are today. So please turn with me in your, um, in your Bibles, your iPads, your iPhones, your whatever else you have. And we'll look at the psalm of David, number eight. A very unusual psalm from David because actually it focuses entirely on God. There's no cries from David or no, you know, help me, I'm in trouble type of David psalm. This is all about God. And it's focused on his magnificence, his majesty, and his personhood. But in nine short verses, it deals with three things. 
sort of gives us a very great insight into who God is, deep insight into who we are, and also what our calling in life is. That's not bad in nine verses. And actually, since the ninth verse is a repeat of the first verse, it's really in only eight verses. So this is a very dense and magnificently constructed psalm. And uh, I'd like to just uh, pray up front, and then we'll read the psalm together. So, Father, you know that I'm a, a broken vessel, uh, unworthy to really proclaim your words but we know, Lord, that you give us the words at the right time, that you use even the weakest of vessels to do powerful things. So I just invite you this morning to use me, to use your word, to open people's hearts and minds to see who you are so that we can worship you and obey you in joy and in love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read Psalm 8 together. I'm reading from the ESV. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. So let's look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. Now sometimes you might think, well, they're just repeating the word Lord for, for emphasis. We, do that. we see that often in the Bible. Verily, verily, uh, making an emphasis. But actually, this is not an emphasis. These two words are different words in the Hebrew. You'll notice one is in capitals. And the other is not in capitals. Well, the first letter is in capitals, but the rest of the, the word is in lowercase. And for those of you who have been sitting under Todd as our teaching elder for many years, you will know that when you see Lord with all four capital letters, that's actually the word Yahweh. It's God's personal name that he's given us for himself. Lord, on the other hand, which has the capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D is the word Adonai, which means sovereign king or Lord. So what we have actually here is, O Lord, our Lord, is a name and then a role. So it's like saying, O Steve, our teacher, or O Gail, um, wife. I was getting that right, yeah, our wife, that's right. <laughs> have to get this, this get this right. So, um, so it's a name and it's a role. And immediately, in four words, you know, the psalmist has declared who God is. He's Yahweh, and he's our sovereign king. And it goes on to say, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you know when we talk about the name in the Bible, we're not just talking about Andy or Gail or Steve. We're talking about the character, the person, the essence, the character, the wholeness of that person. 
It's their reputation. It's everything that they've done. It's what they stand for. And so the name here of our God is, in the words of the psalmist, is majestic. And what does majestic mean? Well, majestic means uh, excellent, exaltic, uh, exalted, or great. And it's most usu usually uh, referred to when you refer to kings. You know, his majesty would be an example of using this word majestic to be someone who's high and exalted. And I think it's interesting, in, in the US, I don't quite think we have the sense of kings. You know, we have an elected president, and being a Brit originally, although now an American citizen, uh, you know, the president doesn't quite cut it the same way as a king cuts it, I have to say, or a queen. So uh, in England, I have a little, this is a little show and tell, a little embarrassing. Um, this, is my, this is my family of origin. In about 1981, the tall, handsome guy is my father, and then my mother to the left, my sister in between, and, and me as a young 30-year-old or something at the time. This photograph was taken at Buckingham Palace. My father had been awarded a thing called a Commander of the British Empire, which is a civil, um, it's a civil award that you get, and you go to be in the palace, and you meet the queen, and she gives you this thing, and here we all are ready. My father's dressed up, you can't really tell, but he's got tails on, and he has a top hat, and he has the whole deal, and of course the ladies have to have their hats, which is appropriate to go into the palace, and there's me standing there in a regular suit, and my father and I, we all went into the palace, and you know, the queen is not very tall, a diminutive woman, whereas my father's six foot three. But I remember as he walked forward to get his award, he bowed and he knelt to her and she spoke to him and he called her your majesty. Great respect and great honor. Just to be in Buckingham Palace, the palace of a king or a queen, which is really nothing more than an inherited family role at this point, nothing that significant, but to be there was very remarkable. You know, in the Bible, when we look at kings, and we have lots of kings in the Old Testament, you know, they're even more dramatic in terms of when you come before a king. Uh, the king that you know, I thought about this morning was um, in the story of Esther. When Mordecai, if you remember, tells Esther to go before the king and ask for a favor for the, her nation, her Jewish nation. And this is what she says in, in Esther uh, chapter 4. It says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. It's to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And then Esther says, but as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And it's with that great bravery then, if you remember, she goes forward and the king holds out the scepter. Kings in those days had absolute power. They had the right to kill. They had the right to marry. They had the right to, to wage war. Anything they wanted to do, the king would do. They had absolute power. And the only way they came to the end is when someone more powerful than them took it away from them. And so it progressed. I think if we think about kings and we think about power, our king is all-powerful, but he's a different king. He's a king that is a creator, has created all things and magnificently created all things. He's a God of righteousness, 
But he is a lawgiver too. And those things have to work together. But he's a king of grace and mercy, the only king that I'm aware of who died for his subjects. Nearly every other king that I know, if not every other king, has his subjects die for him or her. That's the king that we serve. And how powerful is he? Well, verse 3, of course I pulled my finger, verse 3 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. That's how powerful this God is. Created everything. And what a week for me to be preaching on this, because this is the week of the Webb Telescope and the first pictures that have come from the Webb Telescope out in space a million miles away. Have you seen the pictures? We're going to see some of them right now. If we can turn the lights down, I'd love to just show you. And this is uh, Liza Mills put this together for us. Stephen's Quintet, you saw at the end there, are four galaxies, galaxies close together, although what close means, I'm not sure. You know, let me put some of this by numbers. A few years ago, we felt there were 100 billion galaxies in the universe. You know, we're part of the solar system, which is part of the Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy. People felt there were 100, million, 100 billion galaxies. Today, the estimates are between 200 billion and 2 trillion galaxies. That cliff you saw, the cosmic cliff, scientists evaluate that that might be seven light years tall. A light year is 5.8 trillion miles. That cliff is 40 trillion miles tall. That's a long drive. You know that deep field one you saw, the dark one, with the, that was the first image that came out with the little spots on it, that deep field image? 12 and a half hours of exposure to get that shot. Try that with your iPhone. And what NASA said is, the way to think about that is, if you think about your range of vision, and most of us can see more than 180 degrees this way, and when you think, enough, think of that as your whole range of vision, let's assume that's the entire universe. What NASA said is what we're looking at in that one picture with thousands of galaxies is equivalent to putting a grain of sand on your fingertip and holding it out like this and seeing it versus the rest of the range of vision that you have. You know, and this is just what we think. We're beginning to understand it, but every time we explore, we see more and more and more. And the only thing I can really say is, wow, it just blows me away. Frankly, I can't understand it because I have a finite mind. 
and I'm trying to understand the infinite. For me, there's got to be an edge, right? I mean, something, there's got to be an end to everything because I need boundaries. Or if there's nothing, well, wait a minute, I, I, there can't be nothing. It can't just go on forever. What is infinity? I can't grasp that. Yet our God is without bounds. He's not set by time. He's not set by space. This is our king. The one thing I can tell you is that all of our views of God are way too small. Way too small. I remember when I first became a Christian some 30 plus years ago, my, my thought of God was, you know, God's a really great guy, but so am I. So he's like here and I'm kind of here. Uh, the more I get to know about God and the more I understand things, and frankly, just studying this psalm this last week has been a great blessing to me. I just realized, you know, God is so vast and uncomprehensible, incomprehensible, either of those. And I am just small and insignificant in the scheme of the cosmos. Not even a blip. This is our majestic God. This is his majesty. And maybe if we haven't thought about that for a while, let's just take a pause for a few seconds and just think about those images. Just think about this God that is our creator God and our loving God, our king. And you know, it's interesting. The world has had some very interesting commentary over the last week. I don't know if you've been reading some of the comments. When you see stuff like this, people are drawn to the question of why or, or, or origins or is there a God? I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to quote you from the Washington Post and say I agree with this comment. This is from a guy called David Von Driel who, who writes a column every couple of, couple of times a week. And he was writing a, an article on you know, this web telescope, which has cost lots of money and a lot of time, is it worth it? Why have we been doing this? And he just comes down to an incredible sense of absolutely, it helps us understand who we are. He goes, the more we can see the scale of the universe, the innumerable heavens and the countless earths, the smaller our part in it feels. Yet here's the sentence that got me. Smaller yet more precious. And isn't that exactly God's response? David's response, I should say? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now, David is not saying, yeah, what, what's man? I mean, we're just a nothing. No, he's saying, who are we that God is mindful of us? The song we sang this morning, that God is mindful of us. That means he knows about us. He's thinking about us. He's remembering us. Luke 12, 7 tells us every hair on our head, our head he knows. First Chronicles 28, 9 says he knows every thought. Huge God, fast, little me. Not as hard for him any longer to know every hair on my head, but he knows every hair on my head. He knows every thought I have. He's mindful of us. But then he goes more than that. It's not just mindful because he wants to be a cosmic killjoy for me. He's, a, he's mindful of me, and he cares for me. Care being love, the greatest expression of which, of course, was the death of Christ on the cross. 
to save us from eternal damnation. Jesus, that final expression of his love for us. And there's the great contrast for me, the great mystery that I can't get, which is why does this massive, majestic king care for me? It's hard to understand, but the Bible's very clear. It frankly stops me in my tracks, and my response is gratitude. Let me go on and quote the next sentence from this uh, article from David Vondriel. He says, for the farther we see, the humbler we become. And the fruit of humility is gratitude. And that's my response this morning to this God, this King, is one of gratitude. And by the way, this is nothing new. We have known this about God for a long time. In fact, there's a picture here some of you will recognize. This is, I think you can just about see it here, but this is uh, Emerson Hall in Harvard. You know, this was built in about 1900. It was named after Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the great philosophers and humanists of, uh, of America. And yet the builders, what did they inscribe, if you can see it on the top? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Psalm 8, verse 4. And all the great thinkers and all the great philosophers, and yet it comes back to who is God and who are we, and that he is mindful of us. By the way, and... Uh, you know, you could probably talk to some big Gavin here, we'll probably help you. You can walk around Harvard Yard, you see lots of inscriptions that reflect Christ and God at Harvard. But there's more for you and I. So God cares for us, he minds us, but let's go on. You've yet, verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now that heavenly beings there is translated as the word Elohim, which has multiple translations depending on the context. It can be God himself, it can be God with a small g, God's small g, or it could be angels or heavenly host. Most translators at this point have picked the word angels or heavenly host for this. So there's a spiritual hierarchy. This tells us there's a spiritual hierarchy here. We have God at the top, God the triune God at the top of the hierarchy. Then there's heavenly host or angelic beings then there's humans, just a little lower, and then you have the other created beasts, animals, fish, everything else that you see uh, in verses 7 and 8. And that's where we are today. But the, remember, that in the future, as we accept Christ, excuse me, Christ as our Savior, we become elevated in the spiritual hierarchy because we move from being a little lower than the heavenly beings to being sons and daughters adopted by the Father. Now, I don't know where that puts us on the hierarchy, but I think it puts us pretty close to God. Probably above the heavenly beings who probably don't have the same kind of opportunities for debate, but that would be what my conjecture. And so this is who God made us to be. He's made us to be sons and daughters, to be adopted into his family. This God that's created this universe, has created everything else, wants you and me to be adopted into his family, to be our father, for us to be his sons and daughters. And then he goes on further, verse 5b, 
and crowned him, and by the way, when we're talking about man and him here, we're talking about mankind and all of us. Uh, ladies, don't worry, you're all included in this, of course. Crowned with honor, glory and honor. And the word glory in this place is the, is the, is the Hebrew word kovad. Kavad means heaviness or weightiness. You know, if you talk about someone being a weighty scholar or a weighty person, it means they're a person of substance, somebody that you can um, trust and rely on, someone with great worth. So glory here can be translated as a person with great worth. And obviously, honor is to esteem and value somebody. So a different kind of translation of that would be, our God crowns us with great worth and value as people. So what we've heard so far in two verses is this is what it means to be human. It means to be created by God. And if God can create those kinds of heavens and earth, he can create wonderful beings. You know, we're still trying to understand the mind and the way our bodies work and the way we think. We're created by God. We're minded and cared for by God. We're elevated in the spiritual hierarchy and we're crowned with honor and glory. That's another wow for me. I was going to ask it this question, do you feel that? As people, do you feel that? Being so honored and so gloried and being so important to God? And then I realized it's nothing to do with feeling. Feeling takes us in the wrong direction. Do you know this? Do you read this in scripture? Do you believe this? This is who we are. Because you know, one of the great battles that we fight in today's culture is a battle that one would describe as nihilism. A sense that a rejection of all things religious and moral so that we can basically say in the belief that life is meaningless. And as I look around today, you know, a, a, a lot of discussion and a lot of despair, a lot of hopelessness. Where are we going? What's happening? Uh, I see that in particular with young people today in their music. Um, and, and probably my parents said that about me, by the way. Uh, I, I think it just goes on from generation to generation. But what a lie. What a spectacular lie that we're essentially just a bunch of molecules. We're a biology project. We're the result of chance. There is no meaning, there's no purpose in life. How do you live that way if that's what you believe? Well, the answer is very uncomfortably. Why am I here? What am I doing? What, what's the, you know, what, why does it matter? On the other side of the lie, of course, and we know where that lie comes from, it comes from Satan. On the other side of that lie is that we are God's special creation, loved by him, this magnificent creator, this majestic God. You know, I, I'm concerned about the sense of hopelessness we see in the world. And as I thought about this, I looked at myself and I said, you know, this is my fault. It's the church's fault. It's the fault of all of us who know the truth if we're not taking time to show people the truth and share with them the truth, both in terms of words and deeds. Are we taking our young people and are we showing them how magnificent God is? Are we showing them how important we are to him, how glorified he wants to make us, he wants us to adopt 
us as his children? I don't know. I don't think so. We need to fill that void because what's missing today is not more money. It's not more toys. It's not better job promotions. It's not nicer houses. What is missing today is God in the hearts and minds of people. That void that Pascal spoke about so many years ago. Because life has meaning. And not only is the purpose and meaning of life to worship this magnificent God, but also God has given us a task. Read on to, chapter, uh, to verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, for some of you who know me well, you might be very worried at this point that I'm about to launch into a sermon about the theology of work, which could take us another three or four hours. Let me just say, sufficient for it to say that this reflects Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 8 after the flood, and other places where we, we hear of a thing called the cultural mandate, where God gives to mankind the dominion over his creation, to rule over his creation. And if we look at Genesis 2.15, it tells us to work and tend, to make it productive on the one hand, but to look after it on the other. And we can't get too unbalanced on both of those things, one way or the other. God loves his creation. When he saw it, he said, it is what? Very good. He loves his creation. And he's appointed us to be his co-creators for creation care and development as it goes forward. That's a high calling. How can we say that our life is meaningless and we have no purpose if God has said, here's my creation that I love, help me grow and tend this creation? Wherever you are, that's where God's put you, in a workplace, in a home, in a school, in your community, in your church. This is where God has put you. Are you exercising that dominion? Are you exercising that creation care and work in the place that you are? Are you bringing righteousness and justice? Doing what's right and fair and creating an organization that trusts itself? Are you, bringing things, are you doing things with excellence? Are you serving others? And to go back to Genesis 2.19, are you naming the animals? Because that's what God invites us to do. It's sort of the modern day naming the animals. Frankly, it's kind of too big for me to think about sometimes, to take on the world. But you may have noticed I've missed a verse. So, anybody noticed I missed a verse? <laughs> I missed a verse too. Because it's an odd little verse in there. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And by the way, those were the words that Jesus used in Matthew 21 when he turned over all the money changes and everything, threw them out of the temple. And then the temple mount was, was invaded by the poor, the infirm, children, the people that had been kept out by the leaders and the authorities. And the children came and praised him. And the Pharisees said, what are these people doing? Listen to them, this is foolishness. And he said, out of the mouths of babes come the truth. And he used children as a way of chastising the leaders and the rulers. God continues to use the weak to show his strength and bring his purposes to pass. 
And he uses you and me, the weak, to do that. And we can be assured of that. We can be strengthened by that. We can be confirmed in that. What a calling. Don't tell me that life has no meaning. Don't tell me that life has no purpose. This is our purpose. This is our life. This is what God calls us to do. And finally, he returns to the initial phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. To frame the psalm with these statements of worshiping this majestic God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'd like to uh, just read this. It's a short psalm. I'd like to read it one more time. And as I do so, I, I want to invite you to maybe close your eyes. You know, the psalm book is a book of songs, but also a book of prayer. It's God's book of prayer, if you want to think about it that way. So I'd love for you to pray along with me as I read this and maybe invite God to speak to you in terms of what does this mean for me? So let's pray. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Music team, if you...